This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Beehive band are back in a busy week as the government rushes to get legislation through before they can't. We've had brave faces, backdowns, backtracking and more alleged bullying behaviour. And that's just from Brent Edwards. Well, actually, not the bullying bit. For the backtracking. For the backdowns. But he does put on a brave face. It's all coming up, Brent. They said, he said, she said, they're wrong. No, we're not. The silly season has not only begun, it's racing towards polling day, which frankly can't come soon enough. And two polls out this week, as we see where everyone is in the starter's gate. Roy Morgan showing bad, bad news for Labour. And the News Hubread research poll, not quite so bad, but still, Nats 36.6 up 1.3. Labour 32.3, that's uh, down 3.6. Ooh. Act 12.1, Greens 9.6 to party. Maori 2.7 and whew, New Zealand first 4.1, putting maybe not a smile but certainly a grin on Winston's face. Basically it all means a right government of National Act 63 seats. Or does it Brent? Because Seymour's just come out and said these magic words, absolutely no way I'm going to be sitting around a cabinet table with New Zealand first so you can get that off the agenda now he said. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I mean, what David Seymour will be counting on is that National and the ACT Party have enough seats between them to form a government without needing any other party, such as New Zealand First. But it will be interesting if, for instance, they did fall just short and to form a yes. government, they did need New Zealand First. What would happen then? Well, uh, it, well what would happen? Well, would... Would David Seymour stick to that? Well, he no. can't, because at the end of the day, if you look at what he said, he unequivocal. If Winston's in yeah. there, we aren't, which means supply from the crossbenchers, doesn't it? Possibly. There may be other ways they'll do it. They'll, ha uh, they'll have quite a few people, yeah. won't they? I mean, he, he would want to have a big influence on government, presumably, and you can have yeah. more influence on government if you're part of it. Well, not if you're sitting in the crossbenches and you have all the well, power to give them nothing. Well, yeah, but all, all you can really do on the crossbenches is stop things happening. So, so yeah. I mean, you, I think everyone agrees, you know, if you really want to have some say in the government, you really need to be in the Cabinet room. So that will be an interesting debate. Um, I did I know, find, find it interesting, though, <laughs> that Seymour turned around and said people have short memories. The reason we're in this car car is because of the decision Winston made two elections ago. Yeah, and it is also ironic because apparently I think Winston Peters has referred to um, Seymour's comments and this rejection of New as childish, but of course um, New Zealand First, Winston Peters has already ruled out Labour. <laughs> so we we know now a number of parties who they won't talk to, <sighs> but let's wait and see to see where the votes fall as to what might force people perhaps to talk to people that they might not have wanted to talk to before yeah, but the then why, but, but then why draw, a, and it's not just a little line in the sand, it's absolutely staying how it is. Well, I think it's a line in the sand, and I think probably what David Seymour is hoping is by making it that clear, he might perhaps um, persuade some wavering voters who might consider voting New Zealand first to vote, say, National or at least, or ORAC possibly, because they think, oh, they're not going to go into government with them. Um, um, but, but, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, the polls, yeah. I mean, clearly we've talked about New Zealand first before, and... 
it seems to be doing that surge that it has done in previous elections. So, yes, certainly Oof. looks as though it's maybe making that late dash to the line. And, and if those sort of figures that we saw in that poll are correct, at least, what, 14 Labour MPs gone? Do you think anyone's uh, panicking? Not not by my reckoning. Because what's your reckoning? Well, I reckon possibly about 10 because there are okay. a number who are already leaving. Or, you know, not okay. uh, they're retiring. So I think of, of sitting MPs that are standing, I think it's probably on those numbers, it's about 10. So are those 10 people sitting there going now, oh... Oh, I think all, all of those MPs who are That gravy of, train's gone, they'll be saying. Who are who are on the line or, or <laughs> over it. Yeah, they'll, they'll be worried. They'll be... I guess from Labor's point of view, what they'll be hoping is that... Um, Come the campaign, Chris Hipkins, that maybe he can do enough to lift their vote by a couple of points above that, which won't bring too many more MPs in, but might then give them a chance post-election to to negotiate to form mm. a government. Yeah. Well, of course, the government, the current government, is crowing about agreeing to support the Independent Arbitration Panel's recommendation to increase secondary teachers' base salaries by 14.5% by December 2024. Uh, as they bought in the arbitration system in the first place, Brent, they could hardly not agree, could they? Well, it would have been a, yeah, it would have been extraordinary if they had rejected that that arbitration. I mean, but of course they do make the point. But they're crying no, about the fact, oh, we've agreed. It's like, yeah, well, yeah. you didn't have a lot of choice. Well, I mean, and yeah, they're crying about the fact how they're, how they're supporting teachers. Well, well, which, well, of course, the teachers haven't agreed yet, by the way. Have to no, have that the teachers. In. Well, the union, the PPDA, is recommending it to the members, which is is, is different to. Well, pre no, they're saying it's a relatively. It's better than what they had. They're recommending it to their members. So. So the but it, so the, but the members decide. The members decide, but previously it, yep. it they had not they had recommended to go against previous right. offers from the Ministry of Education. So so it's a step forward. I mean, you'd be surprised if they don't take it, um, because you know in today's environment it's not a bad offer. It's pr probably the best they're going to get. The government's making it very clear that it's going to have to stretch itself to find the money. Well, it's yes, going to find well, some, it's an extra six hundred and eighty million dollars. So Where, has, where's that coming from? Well, it has to find some savings within the education portfolio already, but also it's I guess it's it's putting it into the next budget where it'll take money from the next budget to pay for it because because obviously part of the impact of it flows into the next budget anyway. So, yeah, that's... So there may well be... Um, and no-one, you know, some of the details around where that money will come from isn't quite clear yet. And you might soon find <laughs> teachers, the education sector, yeah. complaining because they've got squeezed in other areas to make sure they've got a pay rise. Well, of course, pay um, of course uh, if Labor don't get in, they won't care because all it will have is... It'll mean less money for Nationals' roading policy. Why not? <laughs> Well, probably no, not really, because that's operational spending. Yeah, Whereas, but hang on, see now, hang on. Now, New Zealanders will be able to get where they want to go faster and spend less time in their yeah. cars and doing more time doing what they love. Yeah. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? Yeah, I know, but all I'm saying is that won't really have an effect on Nationals' plans for roading because that money is capital spending. It's money that you borrow um, to pay for the roads, so it's not operational spending. But it's going to obviously, uh, you know. Contract, but I mean, National's yes. promising to bring spending under control, it says. Well, that's, so, but that's good then. Um, but they haven't really done <laughs> their lesson, have they? Because, again, National, hours after that great big huge launch, had to yet again clarify things, read the four-lane highway from Tauranga to Northland. In fact, saying, oh, yeah, sorry about that, it's going to take three terms of us being in government. Well, why can't they get things right the first time? They're not learnt. 
Yeah, well, I know. But that's the thing with all of these big infrastructure projects, though. You know, you get parties promising the earth around it. I mean, if you think back to... This was four hours later. you think back to 2017 and light rail, you know, to the airport. I mean, and (laughs) and these things always inevitably take a lot longer to plan and fund, let alone build. Well, it did sound good until I read the part that says they're going to bring congestion charges. I didn't like that. You didn't like congestion charges? No. Yeah, well, it is interesting too because also they're looking at value capture, which I'm pretty sure they criticised yes. at a time when the the Labor government was talking about value capture in terms of helping fund That's light right. rail. That's exactly but right. everyone will look, once they're in government, you know, when you're in opposition, you say certain things. When you're heading to government... Um, how to fleece the poor taxpayer out of more those money. Those options become That's more... That's what it is. Well, maybe, but I guess... And don't quote me on that. But I think from any party that's in government, if they're looking at big, big transport projects, now whether it's roads, whether it's public transport, light rail or what have you, yeah. you know, funding them is difficult. So they do have to look at the ways that they can fund I'd be happy with road tolls, but not congestion. Anyway, look, major confusion about the cost because Labor's saying there's a big hole. However, the Nets say they got the figure, figures from the Minister's office. Yeah, well, there's an argument about how up-to-date the figures are, but, I mean, what you will see... Well, you can't turn around and say, oh, the figures are wrong because we haven't released the right ones to you. Well, I don't know. I think the government's argument were there were up-to-date figures available that they, that they didn't use. But clearly it's going to cost more than is clearly in the policy. And I think they've accepted that in a sense that, I mean, we you know costs are going to inflate anyway. Even if the thing is, are your costs as, as robust and as up-to-date as, as they are at the moment? What you'll see now with an election campaign going on, Labor's going to attack National on its costings consistently because... They can only go by the figures that they've been given. Because National has made a point of saying it would be a much, much better manager of the... But you can't can't give detailed policy if you don't know how much, you know, things are. Yeah, but it follows on from, you know, National made the mistake, it got it wrong with its um, tax policy about how much that would cost because it got the wrong figures. So, you know, I mean... (sighs) They're going to face these attacks. They have to get ready for them and make sure they're, you know. Yeah. Speaking of attacks, what's the difference, Brent, between the government and Labor? Now, I'm I'm explaining this. Grant Robertson, people keep saying to Grant Robertson, what's the situation with your tax? You're going to bring this in, the GST thing, blah, blah, blah. And he keeps saying, no, the government isn't looking at this. Mm. But does that mean that Labor isn't looking at it? In which case, he's just trying to be clever. Um, Yeah, it doesn't. it, It Well... He's, he's correct. Oh no, the government. Oh, he's correct oh, no. because you know if if he hasn't got the treasury looking at it, then the government is looking at it. But you know, over up at Fraser House, the Labor Party may well be looking at these so sorts he is of policies. To be clever. Well, not clever. It's it's spinning on a coin. I mean, people say Labor policy, government policy. At the moment, the government's doing things. It's a Labor government. That's so. But you, it's this so Labor you, government, so you, not not the next one, possibly, which might be different. From well, what Labor's policy yeah, is. Yeah, well, because the Labor Party will out roll out policies for the election campaign, which will be different or new in terms of what it's doing yeah, now. Yeah, so basically don't believe anything that anyone says. Actually, <laughs> did you read my column today? Because that's pretty much what I said. Yeah, no, that's, speaking of things, uh, uh, that Labor list uh, that came out, I did read that. Any surprises there? Might, might not be any on the list anyway, or many on the list anyway, but... I was interested uh, with Nanai Mahut and Gregor Connor not on the list, hoping to win their respective electorate seats, hoping that uh, voters figure out the only way to save them. Save me, save me, is to vote for them. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure quite what the reasons are. That I think they want maybe to just to say, look, we're electorate MPs. That's where our interest lies. So we have no interest in getting on the list. Um, well, you'd imagine Nanaima Hooter, um, Greg O'Connor. I mean, that might be an interesting um, contest there, possibly. But um, you know, he's around that electorate a lot. So I no, suppose. He's not. No, he's not. I haven't seen him. You haven't seen him. He's, I'm in that electorate. Oh, I, I saw him about. I, I saw him about nine months ago. If I bump into him in the street, I'll give him your address and tell him to pop. Well, up I, well to right. be fair, I haven't seen Nicola Willis knocking on my door either. To be fair, but uh, <laughs> so anyway, any surprises on the list? Well, uh, not not surprised. I suppose one of the things is uh, Georgie Danzi, who was the candidate in Hamilton West yep. um, when Gareth Sharma left. Um, she's, I think, at 31, and I think on the numbers that I've looked at. She'll probably get in on the list. Um, so, but, you know, aside from that, they have, um, well, Michael, not a surprise, Michael Wood's down at 45. Yeah, but he's safe seat. You know, Phil Twyford's low. He but, could be gone. But, but that, well, no, they're both, he should win his seat too. So yeah. there okay. are people who are low down the list, you think, you know, maybe some more experienced MPs, but they're in seats that they should win. I don't so. really think um, that, that, that last person you mentioned, he might have experience, I just don't see him back in Cabinet. In fact, I don't see either of them back in cabinet, to be fair, of those two that you just mentioned. Next week, the House is not sitting. So I guess that'll be, what, photo opportunities, will it? Um, with MPs turning up to everything, including probably the opening of a letter? Probably. I mean, I think, you know, they'll be around, out and about around the country. I mean, we keep on being told the campaign hasn't started yet. Oh, rubbish. But it has, and... Um, be a last chance to wander around before then they get into that final sitting block three weeks and then they're yeah. off and, and it's election. Hey, just briefly, because we're running out of time, security concerns, how are things going to change over the next couple of months with sort of, if you like, the, the kissing of the babies and the shaking of the hands? Um, I'm not too sure about that. I mean, I mean, you'd probably expect there's always security around the leaders, yeah. so I don't know whether that's going to be tightened. I mean, you do hear from some MPs who have particular concerns. I think particularly women and actually particularly Māori um, MPs mm. and candidates. They may be a bit more careful about where they go and yeah. how public they are. I mean, yeah. it's it's a bit unfortunate that we talk about this. Um, it is very unfortunate. But, but, you know, having said that, security concerns, they've always been an issue. Remember Dale mm. Jones back in, what, early 80s being stabbed in his electorate office, the national MP? Um, you know, back in the early 90s after the mother of all budgets, um, both Ruth Richardson and Ginny Shipley had to have um, police DPS protection squad people with them for quite some time afterwards, which was unusual. But... You know, here you still see ministers and that walking down the street to greet, yeah. get their lunch and stuff, so they don't yeah, seem to be that worried sure about yeah. their personal security. Might change. All right, anyway, that is Beehive Banter from our secure card access only office slash studio here in Parliament, and we leave you securely in the knowledge that we will hopefully see you again. Thanks, as usual, for watching or listening. We appreciate it. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Last week, the government tightened the settings of the emissions trading scheme, helping to drive up the spot price in the carbon market. To discuss that, I'm joined by National's climate change spokesperson, Simon Watts. So the changes the government made last week, did they make sense? Look, from our point of view, uh, what the government did last week uh, was sensible. We support the changes that were made, and primarily because the market has been suffering from a high degree of volatility. 
uh, volatility through, I think, uh, lack of certainty around where the government stands in regards to climate change policy, uh, and a number of decisions that have you know, really driven that volatility. And one thing that markets hate more than anything uh, is uncertainty, uh, and that volatility has flown through, and um, you know, anything that can be done to stabilise that, I think, is sensible. I mean, the spot price, I think, a drop below $40, I think, now, the most recent one is around 57 50 it had gone up over $60. But, yeah. but of course, one of the worries that the government expresses and others is the impact of higher prices then feeding through to higher consumer prices. Yeah. I mean, how do you deal with that? Yeah, look, look. the reality is is that you know, climate change policies have a cost. Uh, and uh, you know, we are fundamentally uh, supportive around the ETS as, a, the, as the main mechanism to deal with emission reduction. Uh, you know, I think we're uniquely placed in having that ETS model, uh, and it is a model that we absolutely support uh, and believe will uh, allow us to meet our mission reduction. But the challenge is, um, from a consumer point of view, that you know we are going to see you know an increase uh, price uh, over time. The key, I think, really is is making sure that you know one we understand that's going to occur, but it needs to be a stable and moderate uh, increase over time, and not major volatility uh, in which we've seen uh, to date. Because the price is important, is it, in terms of um, influencing behaviour by both firms and consumers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, pricing signals from the market are, are critically important right through to investment decisions that, you know, our big emitters are making through to, you know, uh, you know people that are considering, you know, long-term investments such as planting trees. Uh, and so I think the balance needs to be, uh, needs to be uh, reached in that regard. But I think the other element that's really important is, is the government plays such a significant role in the market uh, and it's role in, in influencing the price through what it says or it doesn't say um, as a significant implication. And that's what we saw. And, you know, I think it is a bit of a reality check uh, for the government that actually, you know, their need to provide clear uh, long-term certainty around climate change policy uh, is critical. It's an aspect that I absolutely understand with my background. Um, and it is why National have come out already this year, very early on, before all other major parties, in terms of signalling to the market what we will do around emission reduction and our policies in that regard. In, in, in effect, though, would you actually really even strengthen the ETS beyond what the government has done? And Look, uh, we've said that we're open to uh, any improvements, areas and stabilisation to make sure that the ETS uh, is uh, well placed uh, for the future. I think the key is is to minimise uh, volatility in terms of the price signals. I think we've said, you know, the integrity that sits above the overall market is an area that um, you know we want to make sure is is appropriate, uh, because you know there are large deal flows flowing through that, uh, and we've had examples already of which I've questioned the minister around, you know, potential releases of, of market sensitive information. Uh, through uh, processes that, you know, um, I think, you know, we need to be making sure that the process and procedures around that market are, are very solid. So what specifically are your worries around that? Well, there was a number of instances in regards to some of the negotiations that were occurring with some parties where some of the information uh, that was uh, in effect uh, held uh, and under confidentiality agreements um, was potentially released out to the market um, before the last auction, and we've seen the auctions fail. Uh, and you know that is that is completely um, you know unacceptable in regards to an open market process. Again, government plays a critical role 
in terms of influencing that market, uh, and that's what we've seen with the volatility. And so you think with, with a proper market offering, that sends the right signals to businesses to invest you know, for the right reasons to reduce emissions. They don't need subsidies. No, absolutely. We believe that the, the ETS market is the appropriate mechanism in order for New Zealand to achieve its emission reductions targets. Uh, it is critically important that government understands the role in which it plays in terms of uh, impacting and influencing uh, the overall market uh, because of its scale <coughs> and the role in which the government plays uh, in that regard in New Zealand. Uh, and you know that's the mechanism that we need to use. Could it be better and can it be improved? Yes, but are we looking for, at large scale or significant changes to the model? No. Uh, you know the market uh, needs certainty in that regard. What about the role of forestry? Would you make any changes there? I mean, there seems to be still a bit of uncertainty about the role of plantation forests, for instance. And I mean, obviously you, you've announced you know, your policy in terms of um, the conversion of yeah. farmland <coughs> to forestry, but. Yeah, look, well, we'd, what we wouldn't do is take on some of the recommendations around the full nationalisation of that um, that model which the government have sort of, you know, signalled that they're considering. I think the reality is is that forestry is, is critical in terms of the long-term ability for our country to reach its emissions targets. Uh, the offsetting of that is, is a key element and we believe in the sustainability of the forestry sector in New Zealand. Uh, we've released policy in regards to particularly uh, offshore ownership around carbon farming, uh, which I think is you know at the edges of, of the broader conversation. But forestry companies going back to the stability of the ETS price and the stability of the long-term signals that governments send need that certainty because forestry is a 30, 40-year um, horizon business cycle, uh, and you know what we what they don't need and what our sector don't need because it flows on to a whole lot of other elements of our economy. Uh, is significant volatility around certainty, and um, you know, from our point of view, you know, we don't expect to be making any major uh, changes uh, to where we are at the moment in that regard. I mean, with your climate change hat on, do you get engaged in in other policy, national party policies that you know, for instance, I mean, obviously you released that the transport policy this week yeah. clearly has some implications around climate change. I mean, what what's your sort of involvement in those sorts of policy um, decisions? Yeah, well, look, I sit across. Actually, the majority of, of the policies, particularly in my role as associate finance and associate infrastructure, regional development and local government, I sit across uh, all of those in terms of inputting uh, perspective. And I think it's a unique way of way in which the National Party caucus operates, um, the inner runnings of that. You know, we look at problems from a systems perspective, not just single portfolios, but um, you know, multi-portfolio uh, lenses on the problems that we need to, to achieve. Uh, and I think that brings us, and you've seen that with you know, nearly 30 policies we've released so far this year, a much deeper and richness in terms of the policy thinking and the, un the consequences and unintended consequences of that. So, uh, yeah, heavily involved in that, and um, I think that's critically important uh, in terms of having you know, good policy as we go into the election. I mean, we've obviously had the really bad weather here in New Zealand, um, Cyclone Gabriel, the flooding in Auckland earlier, uh, heat waves in Europe, North America, elsewhere, I think references that this has been the hottest July <coughs> that anyone can recall in, in terms of records. What's your sense around the urgency of dealing with climate change, both in terms of reducing emissions, but, I, but also to this issue of adapting to the change that's already happened and is happening? Yeah, without doubt. Without doubt we need to see a step change in terms of the pace in which we're uh, addressing and dealing with the challenge of climate change. We need, and I think what I hear continuously is, is we need to see action. 
that's going to result in the reduction of emissions and we need to see action in regards to how we adapt for the implications of climate change. Uh, you know, 90% of the conversation is around emissions reduction and, and less than 10% is around climate adaptation and actually the infrastructure resilience required to deal with what we have faced significantly already this, you know, this year. Um, you know, from my perspective, that is the element that we really need to be driving a clear long-term plan around, a plan that includes stakeholders from levels of government, banks, insurers and, and private sector around the table. Because these problems are significant, the fiscal implications on the Crown balance sheet over the next 10, 20, 30 years uh, are uh, huge. Uh, and yet right at the moment, you know, after six years under this government, we still don't have a framework in order to deal with these large scale problems. And you know, you know, that is a major concern I think as a country as we move forward to deal with more issues that you've, you've highlighted. Well, government's got that, what, $6 billion, I think, national resilience plan for over 10 years. Is that enough? We don't have a clear national framework to deal with climate adaptation that includes uh, all of the stakeholders that need to be around the table to do that. We don't have a clear understanding of where the line needs to lie around compensation for loss. Um, these are massive and complex questions. Uh, and you know we're dealing with short-term requirements of having to make decisions following the cyclone uh, weather events this year, but we don't have a clear matrix to, to form a decision around that yet. Uh, we need to rapidly get to a place where we have a clear framework to make decisions in the short, medium and long term. And a national lead government would do that? Absolutely. Uh, we've said that we need to uh, rapidly get to a position where we have a clear framework uh, so that, you know, all players within our economy have a clear understanding of how it's going to work. Simon Watts, thank you for your time. Thank you. Oranga Tamariki continues to attract bad publicity six years after it was set up by the national-led government following a critical review of its predecessor, Child, Youth and Family. To talk about what's gone wrong, I'm joined by NBR columnist Bridget Morton. Well, let's go back to when it was set up. Just remind us, what led... Um, the then national government to reform child use and family? Well, I think you had a series of stories like you do now of horrific things happening, not just to the youth that are and young people that are in their care, but also to the staff that are managing that space. And so there was a big review into what should happen. And Holly, then the minister, ran a huge, uh, not just rebrand in terms of the name, but huge legislative changes and big policy changes to try and reform the organisation into Oranga Tamariki. Unfortunately, when you look now, six years later, it's hard to distinguish what was happening pre the change then compared to what is happening now. And why is that, do you think? I, mean, I would love to know. <laughs> I think that's the point, as I think everyone goes, this is horrendous, this is something we should be stopping to do, but it seems like nobody has any answers. And I thought what was particularly interesting is that, you know, you don't normally see it as a vote winner or an election winner. Clearly it's a negative for the gov current government at the moment, but in terms of other policies coming through, I thought ACT Party had probably the closest to actually making some real change. And what are they saying? Well, I think... Uh, Interestingly, from a party you know that's seen of the right, they're talking about a more kinder, more accountable, um, you know, organisation for young people. So one that is focused actually on outcomes at the top. We know that Oranga Tamariki is quite top-heavy in terms of management. So in terms of actually what are the outcomes they're striving to get, but then a whole lot of changes. One that I think seems 
you know, almost obvious that wasn't thought of before, but separating out those youth justice facilities from that care uh, role. Because I think what we have at the moment is a lot sort of mixed sort of state and we mm. see that we don't have the right facilities for people that are in those youth justice centres. So I think that's a major step. And I think also just making sure that we actually devolve more out into the community, which I think will be very popular with many communities um, in terms of that care role. But they kind of get damned if they do and damned if they don't. They don't. I mean, they get criticised for not acting and, if you like, protecting children and maybe taking them away from families that, where you know, they may be um, suffering abuse. But then, of course, they get criticised for taking... I mean, and I, I, it must be a hell of a hard balance to get right. Yeah, absolutely. Oranga Tamariki or, you know, any predecessor is never going to have a whole lot of positive media. They're dealing in a really challenging space. They're dealing with really, really hard, you know, problems to solve, really complex problems to solve. And there's no real science about how you do it. As you say, they get criticised either way. But we know that there's always going to be stories about, you know, young people that shouldn't have been taken or have been taken. I think what is key, though, is at the moment it looks like, at a system level, it's still not delivering for those most vulnerable. Those bad news stories aren't the exception. They seem to be a bit more of reflective of the current position. You know, with an election campaign coming up, do you, do you think this is, should be a partisan issue or is this an issue when we're talking about our most vulnerable tr- children where the political parties ought to be working much more closely together on it? Yeah, I think partisan would be fantastic, I think, in this space. I think we've got a bit of a problem at the moment, as I sort of said, it's not a vote winner for anyone. It's only a net negative for the current government. But that creates space for an incoming government to actually sit down and go, what can we do across the board rather than just criticising what has gone before. It was a little bit frustrating to hear the criticism of X policy just being put out of those sort of 30-second sound bites. You know, Labor just diverted to what their uh, announcement has been over the last couple of weeks on law and order and youth justice facilities. The Greens just made these very waffly statements about decolonisation and the harms. And, and I think that was really frustrating because I think this is actually an area where those parties could actually work together. How likely, I mean... We've had reform, as you, you know, we've talked about the change to Oranga Tamariki. It, it doesn't appear to work. Now, whether that's because the substance was wrong or it just hasn't been implemented right. I mean, do you get a sense maybe implementation hasn't been... Yeah, it's really hard to tell, particularly from an outsider. I think what is clear, though, is that the current minister is not well suited to this portfolio. You know, he spends a lot of time being quite oppositional about any sort of criticism, rather than it seems focused on actually fixing what's happening there. And I think that would be a key to getting the right kind of minister in there to make sure you're actually holding the department to account and keeping them moving on that implementation. Bridget Morton, thank you for your time. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Political spin will become even more pervasive as the parties fight for votes in the lead-up to the general election. Let's discuss this with NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. So, Brent, is it spin? Lying? What do you call it? Well, I guess people call it all sorts of things, but certainly political parties will put their particular uh, spin on whatever they're putting forward. Um, you know, sometimes, frankly, yeah, parties, politicians do lie. Um, and even when they get caught out, they can repeat it because, you know, the old saying is if you repeat something often enough, people will believe it. Do they have to wait for campaigns to lie? Will they do it all year round? Well, it's, I mean, it's a, you know, this sort of, I suppose, general public perception is all politicians are liars. But, but in fact, we, we kind of have a system that almost requires politicians 
certainly not to tell the truth. And I mean, and some of these are institutional. If you think about the issue of cabinet collective responsibility, um, if you talk to a minister after a cabinet decision has made, that minister, he or she, will tell you that they support that decision to the hilt, and that's cabinet collective responsibility, even if they strongly disagree with it. So, and you and you get the same sort of um, discipline imposed on individual party caucuses, their membership. You know, you don't expect MPs are not expected to come out of their caucus meetings and then tell the public that they disagree with whatever their caucus has decided. That's this general discipline. No, you go along. And, I, and I'm not sure that that's the best thing. I think I think we should be mature enough that we could accept that at different times that MPs can disagree with their own party, but that does not mean the party's falling apart. I mean, we we ought to be recognised that there should be, hopefully, healthy disagreement and debate within parties, not just between them. And even that would go so far as, as ministers. The one thing under MMP has been that the Cabinet Manual has allowed the right to agree to disagree for those ministers who are part of minor parties who are in support arrangements or even coalition arrangements mm. um, where they can disagree but only on matters that they don't have direct responsibility for. An example of that recently would have been David Parker. Yeah, and absolutely. And, of course, in the case of David Parker, and you can actually argue whether there was cabinet collective responsibility because in terms of ruling out any capital gains tax or wealth tax while he's the leader of the Labor Party, Chris Hipkins, he's kind of made a, a captain's call. But... David Parker has um, then said, you know, the day after that was announced that, um, and it was then, well, the day after it was announced that he was relinquishing revenue and um, Chris Hipkins was asked, was that anything to do with the, you know, the wealth tax? No, no, he didn't, he wouldn't address that. He just simply said David Parker had asked to be removed. He wouldn't, so not quite lying, but not quite telling the full truth the next day, of course, David Parker told the full truth. He'd asked to be to move from revenue because of his concerns. He disagreed with the decision on the wealth uh, tax GST, sorry, capital gains tax. Mm. Of course, most painted that as an issue of division, disagreement. Uh, you know, um, the opposition called for him. He should be removed as minister. He'd breached cabinet collective responsibility and what the like. I mean, the guy had just been honest. And I mean, and this is the thing in politics, we complain about politicians lying, but when they're honest, we complain too. Um, it's a no-win situation. Well, how big a deal will misinformation be during this campaign? I mean, look, obviously um, people have raised real concerns about the level of misinformation that you might see um, through the internet and kind mm. of the conspiracy theory, but, but we've always had misinformation. It is not new. It, it may have ratcheted up through now, you know, internet and the way that information COVID can be put out and all of that. Mm. But um, political parties always put missing their spin on things. They always have throughout every campaign, and it's always been a question of saying, what is really accurate and truthful here? I mean, one of the things that would be good, actually, would be before election campaigns is to get some agreement from the parties on the facts of an issue. You know, if you look at law and order or or other issues, what are the numbers? You know, let's get an agreement on the numbers. Mm. Then you can argue about which policy is going to be better at changing whatever 
position, whether it's education, outcomes or health, whatever. But of course what we get from political parties is putting their particular spin on what the numbers means and presenting it as fact, when it may not be quite as accurate as that. So, And that does make it difficult for the public to really determine, well, what's happening here. Is that the only thing political parties should do? What else? Um, well... <sighs> Yeah, I think that that would be the main thing because they're going to disagree on, you know, they're putting up different policies. So, sure, you put a party puts up its policy on particular issues, whether it's law and order or education, that. Um, but, and, and they'll disagree about those, but it, it is around sort of, let, surely should be some basic sort of facts that we can, that, you know, political parties can agree on. And of course, and then, then this is the job for the media. And of course, you know, most media organisations try to do fact checking through a campaign, but it is difficult given mm. the um, level of resources that media, you know, that news media companies have these days. Um, and yeah, it just would be it would be a public service going into an election, and you want voters to go in and vote with a, a clear mind about what where things stand. If you know, okay, they know here's the crime rate. Here's the rate of educational attainment. Here's you know here's here's the unemployment rate. Or mm. but of course, everyone takes you know the old saying. What is it? Statistics, statistics, and damn lies. Or was it the other way? But so, <laughs> but you know it, that's where you could see um, a situation set up, which would allow the public to make much more informed choices about which parties they voted for. Brent Edwards, thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.